Again, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, you are here, you are among us, and you are to be praised. You're to be praised for everything that you've given us, but especially are you to be praised for the great hope, the great salvation, the great good news that you have given to us, Father, through your Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Receive these gifts so that that gospel might be sounded forth here and even beyond to the uttermost parts of the earth, to the praise of Jesus' name. In his name we pray. Amen. Please turn to Romans chapter 5, and we are going to continue to look at this this passage that um, I'm telling you, uh, the more I read it and think about it, and the more that I read people a lot smarter than I am who have read this passage and thought about this passage, the more convinced I am that it really is pivotal to our understanding of what's going on in this letter. And let me just acknowledge that this is Reformation Sunday, and you may uh, you may be in the habit or the custom of hearing a sermon on justification by faith alone, which is to say simply this, that I am accepted by God not on the basis of anything that I am, not on the basis of anything that I do. If I try to find my acceptance with God on the basis of who I am and what I do, I am in more than trouble. What it means to be accepted in the presence of God, by God, declared righteous, declared innocent, which is what justification is, means simply that I have come to Jesus Christ and I have cast myself upon him, and he is my only hope in life and in death. It is because of who he is and what he has done, received with the empty hands of faith, that a sinner is declared righteous and accepted in the sight of God. And I would suggest to you that Luther understood not only that, but he understood that justification is the doorway through which I pass into all of the blessings and riches that are mine in Christ Jesus. The gospel doesn't stop with your forgiveness. And Luther saw that and he knew it and he reflected it in a mighty fortress is our God when in those verses he understands that the final outcome of the work of Jesus is the destruction of Satan, the enemy of your soul and the liberation of the people of God from their bondage and from every threat and every fear. Luther understood that. So it's very Lutheran for us this morning to think beyond justification by faith alone to all of this other stuff, which is what we're going to do. So read with me at verse 12 of chapter 5, and I am just going to read the first three verses of this section, though I'll be referring to the rest of it through the sermon. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one 
who was to come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, again, I, I want to ask you that somehow, somehow, in these next minutes, you would set before us the wonder and the beauty of your own person. I pray that you would grow large for all of us as we think about these words and as we seek to think your thoughts after you. Please come and help us by your spirit. We ask in your name. Amen. You may be seated. What Paul is arguing for in this letter is the gospel. That's what he says in the first verse of this letter, Romans 1.1. And what is interesting, and it's been a long time since we were in Romans 1.1, so I want to take you back there to the very beginning just very quickly and point out this thing that to me is very interesting. The first thing that he says about the gospel, after he identifies himself, after he identifies himself as Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, that is somebody who is sent with a message, who doesn't have his own message, who is commissioned by someone, entrusted by someone with a message. He is a slave and he is apostle. He is not self-appointed. These are not ideas that he dreamed up out of his own head. This is the gospel which has been entrusted to him. After he says all of that stuff, the first thing that he says about the gospel is that it is the gospel of God. It is the gospel of God. And that ought absolutely to stop you in your tracks, cause you to sit down, marvel, wonder, and pour out your heart in praise to God himself. This is the good news, the great good news. It is the great good news that comes from God and it is the great good news that is about God. You don't have to choose. The preposition can be translated and should be translated, I think, both ways. It's the good news from God and it's the good news about God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit and what they are doing and what they have done and what they will do. It's the gospel of God. That's that's what we're talking about in this letter. And what Paul has led us through is our need. And then he's led us to Jesus in 3, 21 and following. And then he's talked about Abraham, who is the model, the illustration, the picture of how it is that a person comes into right relationship with God. And after having talked about Abram, then in these first 11 verses of this chapter, he talks about these blessings that are ours. You see, justification by faith. We have peace with God. We have access into this grace in which we stand permanently, fixedly, and we have hope of the glory of God. We rejoice. We boast in the glory of God. We even boast in our sufferings. And we can boast in our sufferings because they're temporary in the first place. Paul's going to say in chapter 8, they're light and they're momentary when compared with the surpassing glory that will be revealed in us and to us. That's Romans chapter 8. 
We can rejoice in them because what they do is detach us from hopes that can't support, can't sustain, will never satisfy, and they attach our hearts to the one hope that will never fail us, God himself, in Jesus Christ. So that at the end of the day, what we find is that we are rejoicing in God himself. That's the first 11 verses. This gospel is great good news and it leads to rejoicing if we stop and if we think and if we reflect and if we do the hard, hard work of believing it. Of believing it. There is a rejoicing that comes out of it. And then we come to these verses 12 to 21, and there's a ton of stuff in here that's difficult to wrap our brains around. And I think the most difficult thing, the hardest thing of all, is this thing that we tried to wrestle with last week, and that is that this real person, Adam, who committed a real sin in real time and in real place, this Adam not only represented us, but somehow mysteriously, really, vitally, truly, all of humankind is united to him, and in him we all, every person, sinned as well. We are connected to him. We are in him. And we sinned in him. And that is the first and original sin. And because of that first and original sin, one in which we somehow mysteriously participate, we all have died. That is the thing that is very difficult to get our brains around, impossible to grasp. I read more commentators about it this week. And the wise and humble ones said, I don't understand this. But understanding, you see, this is the thing we have to be careful about. Understanding, fully comprehending, to my personal satisfaction, the things that are said in the Scriptures about God and about me, my understanding them simply cannot be the final litmus test of truth. It can't be. I say to my inquirer's class all the time, I say to this church all the time, if you're new here, I quote my friend Steve Brown who said, there are three things you got to understand if you're going to get along in the Christian life. God is God, you are not, and sin confuses the first two. It's funny, it's clever, and it is profoundly insightful. There are two things that are true of me. I am finite and I am flawed. And the finite and flawed simply cannot be the final arbiter of what is true. And so while I can't get my mind around this and fully understand it, at some point I have to come to the place where I accept that God, who is infinite and perfect, speaks truth. And when he speaks truth, he can be trusted. And what he is telling me is that somehow I have a connection to a union with Adam and when he sinned, I sinned. And when he died, I died. And while I may not be able to grasp how that happens, I may not be able to understand that union with Christ or with Adam in his disobedience and sin. The thing that I do understand and cannot fail to understand is the reality of death. Death, I do understand. 
and death is universal and unambiguous, no matter the language I use to try to pacify it. I can say passed on. I can say passed away. I can say, as my wife reminded me, what the Salvation Army says, promoted to glory. But death, my friends, is death. And death comes to us all. And what Paul is doing here in these verses is telling us on the one hand how we got into this mess, a mess which the Bible describes with this singularly potent and powerful word, death, and how we get out of this mess which we are in. And we get out of this mess we are in by a new union with a new Adam, a second Adam who brings eternal life, a life which extends to every aspect of human life and existence. As one commentator has put it, this passage, verses 12 through 21, tells us about two men, two acts, with two very different results. And in it, we get a glimpse. In this passage, we get a glimpse of the majesty and the wonder and the beauty and the diversity and the multifaceted nature of the work of the second man, Jesus Christ, who brings a very different set of results from his very different act, an act of obedience as opposed to an act of disobedience. You can see it throughout the passage. You can see the comparison of the two persons, Adam and Christ, in verses 12 and 14. In verses 15 and 16. And you can see the acts of these two persons, these different persons. Verse 15, one man's trespass. Verse 16, one man's sin. Again in verse 17, one man's sin. And then in verse 19, the contrasting act, one man's obedience. And then you see throughout the results. In the case of the one man and his act of disobedience, it is death resulting from sin flowing down across all of life, touching all of history and extending to all people. And as a result of the obedience of the second man, life results flowing down across and touching and restoring all of life for all who believe in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Death versus life. Why has Jesus Christ come into the world? Why has he appeared? What has he undertaken to do? He has come into the world 
to square off with, to confront and to destroy death in all of its aspects, in all of its multifaceted nature. Read verses 17 and 21. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. In verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. See, there are dominions, there are realms, death and life. These are powers, death and life. And Jesus Christ, who is life, has come into the world to destroy the dominion of death and establish the dominion of life, the reign of life for all who receive it, touching every aspect of what it is to be a human being living in the world that God has made much more will those who receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ reign in life through and in and with and by the one man, Jesus Christ. And I said this to the inquirer's class, and I want to say it to you. I sometimes grow weary I sometimes grow weary and impatient at our inclination to trivialize death. And I want to suggest to you that the extent to which we trivialize and diminish the reality of death is the extent to which we will trivialize and diminish the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. Lovingly, I hope you know it, the extent to which we trivialize and diminish the reality of death is the extent to which we will trivialize and diminish the multifaceted nature of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Theoretically, I have 17 minutes left. Somehow in those 17 minutes, I want to walk you through simply in outline form, in a mere sketch, the death that the scriptures describe and which Jesus Christ has come to exterminate for all who would trust in him. First, Because of Adam's sin and because all have sinned in Adam, you are dead in relationship to God apart from Jesus Christ. Because Adam sinned and because all have sinned in Adam apart from the living, 
power of Jesus Christ imparted to those who are dead, you are dead in your relationship to the living God. Dead. Here's what this means. This means that because of sin, a holy, righteous, and just God has become a personal and very real threat to you. This is spiritual death. This is what the Bible refers to as God's judgment and God's wrath, words that show up throughout Romans. If you read the account of the disobedience of Adam in Genesis 3, you come to verse 8 and you read this. They heard the sound of Yahweh Elohim walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They heard the sound of the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The translations all make this sound so pastoral and so idyllic, so pleasant, so desirable. But there are four words in this passage that I want to point out to you that I think when we understand them, underscore this notion that the infinite personal God who is holy and righteous and just has become a personal and very real threat because of the sin of Adam and because all have sinned in Adam. And the first word is this. It's the word sound. It is literally the Hebrew word for voice. They heard the voice of the Lord God. And verse 9 tells us what the voice said. The voice said, where are you? And I've made this point before with you, that the infinite personal God who is really there, who knows all things actual, possible, and all of their actual and possible relationships, certainly knew precisely where Adam and Eve were. The question was not asked because he lacked information. The question was asked because the rebels had rebelled and the rebels needed to know where they were. Where are you? And the second word in that passage is the word walking. And in the original, the verb is in an intensive form and it describes walking with intention and purpose. The implication of it is the idea of searching and searching intently and relentlessly. The word appears very few times in that form in the Old Testament. And the third word is the word that's translated cool in the cool of the day. That is the Hebrew word ruach. It is the word which is translated spirit. It is the spirit who hovered over the primordial disorder of the creation and by whose power the worlds came into existence. It is the spirit who is described as a mighty rushing wind in Acts chapter 2. This is not a cool breeze late in the afternoon. And the fourth word is the word day. And it is the word that takes shape through the rest of the Bible as the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord 
is the day when the eternal God comes in the power of the Spirit, searching for and finding and bringing to judgment all of those who have rebelled against him. That's the force of Genesis 3.8. The God who displays himself as benevolent friend becomes terrifying threat and judge because of the sin of Adam. And so what does God do? What does God the Father do? God the Father has given his Son and he has made his Son the sin-bearing substitute, the object of his relentless pursuit. And rather than bringing those for whom Jesus has died before the bar of judgment, he brings his own son before the bar of judgment. And instead of God's wrath and relentless anger, righteous indignation against sin and rebellion, falling upon sinners, it falls upon Jesus. who is the gift of grace to those who will receive him and a threat is past. Second, because of Adam's sin, we die to goodness. Because of Adam's sin, we die to goodness. We die to moral ability. Look at the words in the text. Look at verse 17 again. Please understand, I'm not the one saying this. Don't shoot the messenger. I mean, you can. People have. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might reign in Jesus Christ. Sin reigned in death. It is a dominion. It is a power. Paul says in Ephesians 2, You had a desperately bad cold. <laughs> you had a desperately broken arm. You had a terribly twisted ankle. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, he says. Why do the scriptures use language that is so piercing, penetrating, powerful? Because the scriptures want to convey to us the notion of fundamental inability. Dead with respect to goodness. I want to be careful here. I want to be pastoral. I want to be sensitive. I want to be understanding. But I want to ask us this question. When will we start reading our Bibles and stop referring to and arguing for 
free will. Apart from Jesus' power to raise people from spiritual death, death reigns and no one is free. No one. Read Romans 6.15. You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. In either case, we are slaves. Paul identified himself as a slave as he wrote to the Romans. Paul called himself first a slave a slave of Jesus Christ in whom true freedom is to be found. We are all enslaved. The question is, who is the master? Who is the master? And what has God done in Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ? He has sent a warrior, a deliverer to free those who are enslaved in sin and death and to set them free to a life-giving slavery, a union with Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, has made us alive in Jesus Christ. Third, in Adam, you died in relation to each other. You died in relation to God. You died in relation to all moral goodness. You died in relation to each other. Read Genesis 2 and then chapter 3. Read at the end of chapter 2 how Adam sings a song as God presents him with Eve. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It is a poem. It is a song. If you look in your Bibles, it is set off from the narrative. It is poetry. He sang when God presented Eve to him. And then read chapter 3 and how the song becomes an accusation and hostility and enmity. Adam accuses his wife, blames his wife, the one who had been the object of his affection and his sheer Delight. That is death, my friends. And look at what happens between the first brothers, Cain and Abel. One kills the other. Look at what happens at the end of chapter 4 when Lamech kills a man simply for wounding him, a young man simply for striking him. Justice has died. Justice has died. The basis of civil society is gone. I will never forget, as a Christian who is two years old as a Christian, listening to my stepbrother tell me that when he, who is an attorney, that when he goes into a court of law, he does not care about what is right, lawful, wrong, unlawful. He cares about his client. The basis of civil society has died in the sin of Adam in which we participate. Why does the son come? The son comes to give birth to a new humanity. The second Adam comes so that through his life and death and resurrection, 
enmity between God and man, to be sure, but enmity between man and man, person to person, man to woman, woman to man, parent to child, child to parent, kid to kid, so that all of that enmity and hostility is overcome. The walls that separate people are crushed as Jesus creates a new humanity in which unity and love and peace prevail. That is Ephesians 2, and that is why Christ comes, to destroy death at that level. Fourth, because of the sin of Adam, we died in relation to truth. We died in relation to truth. I wish I had an hour for this. Romans 1 tells us, and this is, I believe, the right exposition of Romans 1. Romans 1 tells us that Adam, our first parent, and all of humanity with him exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And what is the lie? And this is why I wish I had an hour If you go back and read Genesis 3, you'll remember, you'll know that when the devil, the serpent, the father of lies, the one who has lied from the beginning, Jesus says in John chapter 8, when the serpent comes to the woman, he asks the question, has God said to you, you shall not eat of any of the trees of the garden? That was the question that he asked. That was the first question. And it isn't simply, and I learned this this last week from another commentator. I had this pressed home to me this last week. It isn't simply that Satan tempted Eve to question the truth of God, the truth that comes from his lips. It isn't simply that Satan tempted Eve to question the truth of God. More deeply, more significantly, Satan challenged her to question the truth about God and specifically and precisely his goodness. His goodness. That is what he challenged. Eve, God isn't really good. If he were really good, he'd give you everything. This helps me understand myself better. This helps me understand what I've tried to say to you so frequently. The hardest thing in the Christian life is believing. And in the midst of all of the things that we have to suffer through and endure, the question that is at the center of the question of how do I believe is the question, is God really good for me? And Eve believed the lie. Believed the lie which challenged the truth about God and whether or not he was good. And so what does God do? What does God do? He sends Jesus. And why does Jesus come into the world? Jesus comes into the world to tell me the truth about God to be sure. But Jesus comes into the world 
to show me the truth about the Father. And how does he show me the truth about the Father? How does he show me that God really and truly is supremely good? The cross. The cross. That is how I know that the Father is good. Look at the cross. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also in him, with him, by him, through him, how will he not also freely give us all things? He gave up his son. That's how you know he's good. And knowing he's good, you know that in Jesus, he will give you all things. Fifth, when Adam died, we died in relation to the creation. We were cut off from the free-flowing bounty of the world around us. And now it is thorns and thistles. And what does Christ do? By his Passover, by his exodus, he frees the creation from its curse. And Jesus at his final return will restore it to a land flowing with milk and honey. And he is the greater Joshua who will take his people into their promised land to enjoy that bounty forever. Read Isaiah 35. I wish I had time to read it. Read Isaiah 35 if you want a snapshot of what is coming. And sixth, when Adam sinned and when we sinned in him, we died to life. We died to life itself. Don't say this. I don't say this because I need a badge or want a badge or anybody to applaud or anything else. I spent 10 hours these last two days at Holmes Regional Medical Center. I've looked at death in these last two days. And death is real. And death is not to be trivialized. And what has Jesus done? Let me read Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Hebrews is just articulating what you feel, what I feel, what we all feel, what we all know, and what we try to keep at arm's length. I've said this before. It's the reason we go to the gym It's the reason we eat granola bars. It's the reason we stop eating cheeseburgers. We think that by doing these things, we will keep the inevitable away from us. 
and we are terrified of it in the deepest recesses of our being. And Jesus has come to destroy the one who has the power of death so that those who lived in fear of death may be freed from its slavery. He tasted death for Vicky. He rose to life for Vicky so that Vicky might be freed from slavery and fear of death. And seventh, and this is another hour, so maybe you could come tonight and we can talk further. And it's implicit in what we've just, it's explicit in what we've just read in Hebrews. When Adam sinned, And when we sinned in him, we died in relationship to Satan. Adam was given dominion over the whole of the creation. And when he sinned, he lost that dominion and came under the dominion of death and hell and the devil. And what does Jesus do? 1 John 3, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, not imprison them, not imprison him, not restrain, destroy. We don't minimize death. We don't minimize death in any of its forms, in any of its expressions. We stare it squarely in the face so that we may more fully understand and magnify the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus who comes as the second Adam to reverse all of the ravaging effects of the sin and disobedience of the first Adam. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, help us to live with this, reflect upon it, but by your grace, I pray, I beg of you, that every person in this room would run, myself included, would run to the one who has gained this victory over sin, over death, over all brokenness, over judgment, over hell, and has become for all who would come to him a very great fortress and strength. Lord, I pray that for myself and for us all. In Jesus' name, amen.